0: Hello and welcome to Disneyversity, the podcast crash course through the history of Disney's animated classics, where we talk about some of the most famous movies ever made that most of us probably don't know nearly as well as we think. Each episode we'll be moving forward in time through the legendary Disney catalog, watching every feature film in the Walt Disney Animation Studios vault, from Snow White to Strange World, seeing how they stand up today, how they pushed the boundaries of animation shaped the legacy of Walt Disney and the wider Disney brand, and how they influence pop culture at large. <laughs> A brief disclaimer, this is not an official Disney podcast, but all of these films are available to stream now on Disney+, so come on, watch along with us, and let's learn together. Hello, hello Disneyversity listeners, we hope you're well, we hope you haven't been missing us too much while we're on our little break in the show post Fantasia 2000, and we have a little treat for you here, as we teed up in our study group episode, while we've been on our break from creating the regular show, we've been doing some fun stuff, we've been out and about haven't we Sam, we were at the BFI just a couple of weeks ago.
1: Yes, we've been out, we've been about, we uh, have been chatting, people have been listening, people generally seem to have enjoyed it. (laughs) What more could you want?
0: Well, what more could you want listening to this? If you weren't there in the room with us a couple of weeks ago at the BFI in NFT1 for once upon a time a Disney day, you might have been feeling, ah, we missed out. Look at it. It looked so great. Everybody seemed to be having a fantastic time, if only... We could hear what Ben and Sam spoke about on stage. Well, we have great news for you because we have got the recording. We've got the audio, which you can listen to now. A huge thank you to everybody who turned out to see us in person. And so many people came up and said hello, which was lovely. Really nice to have people in the room who listen to Disneyversity and hopefully a few people who were there in the room who hadn't heard us before and are now Disneyversity listeners. If you're listening to this again, having seen it in the room the other day, then that is true dedication. That is incredible. We have to say a huge thank you to everybody at the BFI. It was an incredible day and you put on a fantastic event and, you know, really looked after us well. We want to say a special thank you to Aga Baranovska, to Hannah Greenwood, Elspeth North, Justin Johnson from the BFI who popped up on our study group episode, Richard Pickard who was a real help in putting all of this together. Thank you to everybody at the BFI, you were fantastic and we really loved talking with you. Now we have a couple of things to set up before you listen to this which you know we did the talk in a room with a presentation with clips which you're not going to be able to see while you're listening to this so a few things to establish we have a series of clips that we played in the room i don't even think we can play the audio we don't want to incite the wrath of mickey mouse by playing even the audio of these clips so what you're gonna get instead is a brief description from me of the clips that we showed in the room We might sometimes refer to images on the screen. It was just basically images that you will know from the films if you've seen the very, very famous, very well-known films that we're discussing in our talk. We also often refer to what Amy just said, which sounds very enigmatic. (laughs) But that is us referring to Dr. Amy Davis, who did the talk before us, just before our talk on the stage. We were second on on the day. The first talk of the day was Dr. Amy Davis, who gave a potted history of Walt Disney himself. And several things that she brought up in her talk kind of then bled into ours. So if we refer to Amy, the mysterious Amy is Dr. Amy Davis... And lastly, we should tee up what the talk is. The name of our talk was From Magic Mirrors to Madrigals, A History of Magic in Disney Animation. We, we teed it up properly in the talk itself, but this is us talking about magic in Disney movies, specifically in the animated films. So that is the topic that we chose to cover in our talk. Very lastly, before you get to listen to our wonderful, wonderful talk, If you are listening to this, if you're listening to the show, if you have heard our live episode on Who Framed Roger Rabbit from last year's London Podcast Festival and thought, oh, that sounded so great and I would love to be in the room next time, well, next time is really not that far away. On Saturday the 9th of September at 11.30am at King's Place in London, we will be back, back, back at the London Podcast Festival doing our second live episode episode and that is going to be all about shrek so you are going to want to be there you are going to want to hear sam dance to the music uh, as we discuss shrek and possibly the shrek dance party that ends that movie tickets are on sale now at kingsplace.co.uk we have a few more plugs coming up at the end of the talk but most importantly we would love to see you there at the london podcast festival come down saturday the 9th of september 11:30 a.m kingsplace.co.uk tickets are £9.50 I think, £9.50 and maybe a small fee, it's not very much, we would love to see you down there, come and see us talk Shrek
1: anyway, you know what, I've I've just decided something, what have you decided? I think I had so much fun at Barbenheimer last weekend with everybody wearing pink, mm-hmm. I think everyone should wear green I think Ooh. if you're coming to the Disneyversity Shrek live show I think you should wear green <laughs> I'm declaring that. The
0: dress code is Swamp Chic. <laughs> Greens, browns are acceptable, especially greenish browns.
1: Yeah, okay. The only exception will be if you actually come dressed as Shrek, with like a <laughs> like a, a, a dirty white tunic, and a, a kind of what looks like an alligator skin, a brown waistcoat.
0: Frankly, you might get turned away. You might not even make it to the venue while you're wearing that. Anyway... That is enough from us. Please enjoy our talk from the BFI's Once Upon a Time, a Disney Day. This is From Magic Mirrors to Madrigals, a talk on the history of magic in Walt Disney Animation Studios. Enjoy. I'm film journalist, Ben Travis. And if this was one of our regular podcast episodes, I would be saying right about now that I'm not your Disney-versity lecturer. But here today, in this room, I guess I kind of am. This is a new position for me. I'm the journalist, Sam's the lecturer, but today, I'm not going to say we have equal footing because the role I take here today (laughs) is absolutely the guy who tries to shirk all of his responsibilities, put it onto an anthropomorphic broomstick with a high likelihood that it's all going to go extremely wrong. Thankfully then, I am joined by the real sorcerer here, a man whose ability to conjure up all kinds of facts about the history of Disney, and to shoehorn in a mention of Robert Altman's Popeye at any opportunity, is nothing short of true magic. I am, of course, talking about my co-host and lecturer in animation at Middlesex University, Dr. Sam Summers.
1: It feels very weird to get two rounds of applause, but that's just how the podcast is structured, so pretend i only just arrived
0: and sam look at this we're in nft1
1: at the bfi this is an incredible room to be in thank you everybody for coming the non-fungible theater (laughs) (laughs) i think that's what that stands for yeah it'll be worth a lot of money in a few years uh
0: yeah thank you so much to the bfi for inviting us here i've got to ask have we got any disney university listeners here has anybody heard our podcast before oh my god and that person who whooped and clapped, we thank you. Uh, Yeah, thank you so much for for coming and for listening to the show. Now, normally on the podcast, we go film by film through the Walt Disney Animation Studios vaults. At this point, we've just finished off the Disney Renaissance, or sorry, Amy, the second Disney Renaissance with Fantasia 2000. But for today, we're gonna be looking back at one of the central facets of Disney. It's a narrative driver, it's a visual effect, it's a core thematic value And that is magic. So when you're discussing Disney, you can barely move for mentioning magic. Disney magic, the magic kingdom, magic mirrors, even this BFI season being called Making Magic. So how did magic become such a central preoccupation for Disney? What does Disney magic even mean? And how does magic operate
1: in those animated classics? Sam. Oh, you asking me? (laughs) I don't have the knowledge here. (laughs) It's a funny one, isn't it? Because magic is so central to what Disney is as a brand, as you've just described, and yet not as many of their even animated movies as you might think actually involve magic. I want everybody on the count of three to shout out together a number (laughs) out of 62 how many Disney animated feature films explicitly involve magic. Three, two, one. You're all correct, well done. <laughs> that was a terrible idea, wasn't it? <laughs> it's, it's 24 out of 62, so it's not lords. and also, Less than half of the animated movies, because you think of it as being a factor of pretty much every animated Disney movie. It kind of depends how you count it, right? Like, what is magic, for example? Is Dumbo, the flying elephant, magic, or is he just like a genetic freak? <laughs> It's an important distinction he's he's the uh, the first X-Man <laughs> of the Disney universe. I don't think well that's that's the thing, right? I don't th- I think Dumbo is like an X-Man. This is Disney synergy. And like Tinkerbell is like Doctor Strange, right? Like she has access to this like <laughs> ability this this like external force captain hook i've come to bargain (laughs) right yeah okay we're getting too deep on the mcu stuff that's not what we're here (laughs) for yeah right It, it kind of depends how you count it i counted 24 out of 62 don't ask me to to back that up by railing them all off and as we were looking through them all it kind of became clear that a lot
0: of the times magic is used in disney films it's in films that become a huge deal for the studio and one of those films that was kind of seismic for the studio and that in the wake of the package era, of the package films during the war, really kind of revived the fortunes of Disney, was Cinderella. So we have a clip from Cinderella of the legendary dress transformation. If we can watch that now, please. Okay, clip one. If you've seen Cinderella, you know this. This is Cinderella receiving her dress from the fairy godmother. Bibbidi-bobbidi-boo and all that. Glass Slipper, The Works, this is that moment from the film. Ooh. It's like a dream. A wonderful dream come true. Yes, it is, as the kid (laughs) said. A wonderful dream come true. So I think we picked that clip. It's going to tie into some of the other clips that we've picked for this talk. But it incorporates so many things. It's extremely sparkly. It is Fairy Godmother's... It is wish fulfillment come true for Cinderella and
1: all of the themes that we're going to be digging into
0: later in the talk.
1: Yeah, it's, it's wish fulfillment for Cinderella. It's kind of wish fulfillment for Walt Disney and the Walt Disney Company as well, because this, like other magic based movies like Snow White and The Little Mermaid, and Frozen and Tangled, I would say as well, like punctuate the history of Disney with these. Um, magic-oriented fairy tale movies that also represent a return to kind of creative form and financial success for the studio. And Walt Disney has said that this scene, this transformation, is his favourite piece of animation that the studio produced. And that's not just because of the visuals, because of the actual quality of the animation on display, but also because of what it represents. It's this ability to transform yourself and to achieve your dreams, which reflects the ideology of the American dream and Walt Disney's personal story, as, as we've just heard in, in detail from Amy, this kind of bootstraps narrative that he'd experienced. And um, just while it's fresh in everyone's minds, it is an incredible piece of animation. Awesome. I love
0: the fact that every time I, w- I watch that, I can never quite pinpoint the moment that the dress changes. It like happens before your very eyes. It's happening kind of gradually and all at once. It's amazing. Um, so we think of magic... And Disney as kind of always having been intertwined. But how far back do you have to go for magic to be something that's in the sphere of what Disney's doing?
1: Well, there is magic in those early Lafogram films that Amy was talking about. They were almost all fairy tale adaptations, albeit with a little bit of a modern twist. So, one of the Laughogram films, and what I think is at least one of the first Disney. Films to actually involve magic directly is their version of Cinderella, which you can just about <laughs> make out there. That's Cinderella on the right. That's Cinderella's cat, Jasper, famous character. And that's the fairy godmother on the left. So you can see just how the kind of technology has evolved <laughs> over time in terms of the visual depiction of magic. Fairy godmother,
0: absolutely terrifying. Uh, I'm horrified. She's got a bit of a Marge Simpson vibe,
1: I will say. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, I can kind of see why they reinvented that for the uh, for the full feature version. But, but by placing it in this modern context, it actually makes that metaphor of magic for this kind of bootstraps American dream narrative even more explicit because now we've got Cinderella who's like a, a servant but in a contemporary context... Who becomes like a wealthy kind of Jazz Age flapper, and uh, the cat, the, the dustbin that the cat is sitting on, turns into like an old timey car as well. Um, I don't have a, I don't have a picture of is that it because it's very hard to take screenshots from these hundred year old films. Is that the equivalent of the pumpkin becoming the carriage, like a bin becomes a car? A car, yeah. It's the okay. modern day. Everyone has bins now. <laughs> it's the nineteen
0: twenties. So, yeah, Cinderella felt like a, an important kind of comparison point to the early part of Disney uh, getting involved in magic. And when we were discussing this topic, it kind of came up pretty quickly that animation itself kind of is magic. And you can say that in a sense that is very sort of, we all feel warmly about animation, like, ah, animation is magic. But it, it kind of is. It is an illusion of this still image that then is imbued with movement. And obviously you can kind of pinpoint that to just cinema in general of static images, put them all together, they move. But with animation, the boundaries of that really are your imagination. You, Whatever you create, you can make it move and you can bring it
1: to life. That is That is an act of magic. Right, and for that reason, there's always been this association between animation and more traditional forms of magic for example some of the earliest pioneers of animation particularly in france people like emil cole and especially Georges melier who made the uh, trip to the moon film and used a lot of stop motion effects in his films they were also illusionists they that you had to have hobbies and um, you had to have second careers if you want to be an animator in the 1920s when that word didn't exist yet and um, so they, they were also magicians they were people who considered themselves like consummate illusionists, and animation was one trick in their big box of tricks. And Walt Disney recognized this as well, that magic makes a great subject matter for animation, and that animation is also perfectly suited to depicting magic. And he also tried out a little bit of magic himself. This is from the, it's very helpful to have Amy's talk beforehand, because I don't want it to set up what the Disneyland TV show is. This is from his 1950s TV show, Disneyland, from an episode called All About Magic, where he demonstrates a few tricks. Again, I hope you can make that out. He is pulling a rabbit from a hat. There's a dove involved. There's a, a magic wand, etc. And what happens to that dove?
0: I'm really intrigued. Where does that dove go? <laughs> uh,
1: uh, uh, he eats it. Um, <laughs> Walt Disney and birds... Google it. Something that Amy skipped over
0: is that Walt Disney stomped on an owl once. That is a true story. Go and look it up. It's not part of the the magical story of Disney. It's kind of the opposite end of the scale, but it happened.
1: A hundred years of magic, a Disney day. (laughs) So, this episode actually opens with Walt doing a little magic trick with a pencil. He makes the pencil kind of float in his hand. And he makes that connection directly. He says... to use the pencil really is a magic wand, enabling us to conjure up the most enchanting fantasies. That was kind of half Walt, half Jimmy Stewart. (laughs) I'm surprised it took over 10 minutes for an impression to come into play here. (laughs) That's That's a new
0: record for us.
1: So yes, animation is easy to see as magic. You put all these pictures together, and it looks like it moves. Ah, crazy. But also, the Disney company's continued use of the term magic and its association between magic and the art of animation the use of that term to describe what they do helps to perpetuate this illusion that this is magic. And especially for like, kids and family audiences even visiting the theme parks, it's like, people didn't make this, people didn't build this. And you know Walt did, especially in these TV episodes, draw attention to the labor uh, that was going into the production of these things. But I think even to this day, let's say if you were a company that had employment policies that could be described as ghoulish, that were being, you know, that there was a lot of media coverage of this week, for example. Then maybe using the word magic to kind of describe how these things get produced would be a way of obscuring the people who actually put in the work to make these things. So it, it's helpful in a lot of ways to draw this connection between magic and animation. And I think as we move through the years of
0: the studio, uh, we see animation as magic being used. In another way particularly in relation to the black cauldron which has anybody here seen the black cauldron who's okay how many of you are still traumatized by that film i'm expecting the same number of hands going up absolutely terrifying uh, but it's a real shift in the studio this is part of the 80s era this is the the dark age of disney and it's the very kind of initial blast of bits of 3D CGI animation coming through, particularly with this incredible orb. Well,
1: we're we're actually two slides away from the orb. We're two slides away from the orb. If I could ask everybody to close their eyes for two seconds, and I'll tell you when to open them. All right, you can open them again. Oh, it's magic! It's magic. Like magic. Here
0: we go. We do have Ilanwi. This is Ilanwi, the forgotten sometimes Disney princess from... The Black Cauldron.
1: So there's always been this relationship between animation and magic, and magic and spectacle, and a lot of what you pay to see when you go and see a Disney movie is the spectacle of magical things happening on screen, and over time the way that they've chosen to depict magic has evolved in order to keep up with audiences' expectations for what looks spectacular. So actually the first Disney feature film to Released with kind of computer generated or computer assisted animation is the black cauldron. So you can see Ilonwe's orb, Hail the Orb, is um, 3D. It kind of floats around in this, in this 3D space. And also the black cauldron itself is computer generated, and the smoke effects are just live action smoke that's being composited onto the cauldron. So in this period of time, when we're starting to develop three dimensional animation techniques, the magical objects are depicted in a three-dimensional way to separate them from the 2D space of the film and make them appear otherworldly in comparison to the characters.
0: Yeah, so while you're watching The Black Cauldron in the 80s, if you can move past a state of sheer terror, you're probably
1: having your mind blown by seeing this kind of 3D CGI object. This 3D orb. You might not have even noticed it, you know, but it has this subconscious effect of like, oh, this thing looks eerie, it looks strange, it doesn't belong. And we've talked in the podcast, about the way that the arrival of
0: 3D animation does create an emotional effect, whether that is spectacle or whether it's the ballroom scene in Beauty and the Beast, which is just an all-timer piece of Disney animation, and that as these two characters basically fall in love and dance together, you are experiencing the, the kind of the thrill and the tingle of seeing this vast 3D animation for the first time.
1: Right, but now, if you've seen the trailer for the movie Wish...
0: Anybody on top of Wish? This is the (laughs) upcoming Walt Disney Animation Studios movie. It's kind of partly tying into the 100 years of Disney. So it's a... We all want to see it. (laughs) Hype for it. I actually got to go to a presentation about that a couple of weeks ago. Wow. (laughs) Sam's not jealous. With a bit of footage uh, presented and uh, yeah, they are throwing it back to uh, Snow White era in particular in terms of the watercolour visual design of a, a lot of the world of that film. But then in the middle of it all, it's all about wishing stars. It's all about Disney leaning into this kind of fairy tale mythology that has been such a huge part of their identity through their life Time. And so there is a character. If you're a fan of like weird little guys in Disney movies, not only is there a talking goat, there is an
1: anthropomorphic star who looks completely visually different to everything else going on in the film. So they've kind of come full circle, right? Like, once upon a time, three-dimensional objects were the spectacle, the new thing that people had never seen before in these films. And now, the the magical object is distinguished from the three-dimensional world because it is 2D. It is flat. It looks like, oh, all the movies that they used to make For the last 100 years, Uh, audiences are now used to what a 3D Disney film looks like. So in order to distinguish this one, we're bringing in a style, a visual style, that emulates hand-drawn animation. And and that's now what magic looks like. Not something high-tech, but something that looks like it's being drawn by hand.
0: And importantly, this is the talking goat (laughs) over here. Uh, Voiced by Disney legend Alan Tudyk. So, again, when we were discussing this topic magic comes up in all sorts of different ways it comes up as a metaphor for animation itself it comes up as a technique effectively that they're using or a way that they kind of distinctly position themselves versus what everybody else is doing it also then means that you have this entire bench of Disney characters who have access to magic or who have had magic bestowed upon them and when we look back at that we see how much that has changed over time So we've got all sorts of characters who have been involved with magic in some way. But who has access to magic, what they do with it, and why they have it seems to change over this kind of 100-year period. So we have the Cinderella clip up top, and there's a real theme early on with characters who have magic bestowed on them as a reflection of their virtue. So Cinderella, I don't know if you've seen it, she's having a terrible time. She's having an absolutely shocking life. Uh, She is being pushed around by the uh, evil stepmother and uh, her horrible stepsisters. But she's a good person. She's friends with all the mice in the kitchen who are in that film for a surprising amount of time. (laughs) And so as a reflection of the good person that she is, being kind of downtrodden in this position, magic is bestowed on her as a sort of gift of like, "You, you deserve this, you've earned this Cinderella. A slight questioning of where the hell the fairy godmother's been this whole time. There are several other points where she maybe could have intervened. I'm just saying.
1: Well, she, she had to dream first, right? That's <laughs> what it is. Because a dream is
0: a wish your heart makes. <laughs> and essentially, there are, ve- there are many terms that Disney uses in terms of like magical language that all blur into each other. There's, there's magic, there's wishes, there's dreams. We're gonna get onto it, but there's also uh, gifts and miracles. They're all magic, people. They're all magic. But so, again, we were trying to break this down, and it's like, okay, so a dream is a wish your heart makes. A, a wish is the thing that you desire. A wish is the thing that you want yeah, for yourself. But don't wish it with your head or your butt. <laughs> it's got to be your heart. It's got to be your heart. and Not th- your lungs. If you're dreaming it, it's like even a subconscious thing. It's like what you maybe don't even know that you want for yourself, but you kind of crying out for it subconsciously. But then when it becomes magic, when it becomes tangible, that comes with an element of power. And power, with great power, as somebody once said, most famously, (laughs) comes great responsibility. Uh, And I think that's why we see magic being used in all these different ways, because you have Cinderella who, yes, is virtuous and has magic bestowed upon her, We see uh, Geppetto as well in Pinocchio. Geppetto is also told when the Blue Fairy arrives and and gives life to Pinocchio in all his terrifying glory, Uh, she says, good Geppetto, you have given so much happiness to others, you deserve to have your wish come true. He's earned it, he's earned this freaky puppet child. And when I was revisiting this moment from the film, We've just been talking about magic as a special effect and as something that brings spectacle. At the moment where Pinocchio is given horrifying life, he moves from being this kind of still image to suddenly being imbued with life. And Jiminy Cricket stares straight at the camera, breaks the fourth wall and says, what they can't do these days. He's
1: drawing attention. You're not gonna do the voice?
0: I'm not even gonna try. Do
1: you wanna try? Kinda. Do it. (laughs) What's the line? Feed me the line. Uh, what they can't do these days. What they can't do these days. <laughs> that was pretty good. <laughs> Excellent. Oh, <laughs> <I've> ever heard. <laughs> Seal of approval. That was one of the best impressions this guy's ever heard. I mean, it doesn't seem incredibly old, so probably hasn't heard that many. But I'm going to take it. <laughs> <laughs> We've got a Q and A session at the end. You can ask for all the impressions you want.
0: Please don't. <laughs>
1: so, yeah, right. Cinderella dreams to go to the ball with her heart, wishes with her heart. Geppetto, very famously, wishes on a star. Wishes on a star. Not totally clear whether he makes that wish with his heart, but the fact that it is granted means we are forced to assume that he does. And they have their wishes granted because they are good, because they are virtuous. They personally do not have magic powers. It is something that is given to them. The characters who do have magic powers inherently in these early films are either someone like the Fairy Godmother or the Blue Fairy who are just benevolent forces of good, mysterious, omnipotent, only in the movie for a couple of minutes. We don't really know what they're about. We don't really know what their deal is. Or people like the Wicked Queen from... Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, or people like Maleficent from Sleeping Beauty. They have access to magic themselves and they use it to fulfill their dreams. Murdering children. (laughs) It still astonishes me that in Sleeping Beauty,
0: Maleficent is such a move. She just like manifests herself at a christening, curses a baby and leaves. (laughs) That's amazing. What an entrance, yeah. (laughs) But yeah, a lot of the kind of villainous characters are the ones who are imbued with
1: that magical ability for themselves, and they they shouldn't have that power, Sam. <laughs> well, right, and, but the reason kind of in the text why they shouldn't have that power with characters like Maleficent or with Ursula is that they exist outside of the magic kingdom, right? They, they're skulking off in the shadows. They are not part of King Triton's world or the name of the king from... Sleeping Beauty, Hu- Hubert? Stefan, one of them's called Hubert. Right, well neither of these kings want Maleficent in their kingdom. They, you know, the, the movie Maleficent played with this a bit, but these characters like Maleficent and Ursula, who are often strong, powerful women, or who are often queer-coded in some way as well, who are outsiders, when they try to get access to magic, when they try to take that power for themselves to make their dreams, murdering children, come true, somehow they're the bad guys. But there seems to be... OK, motive might have something to do with it, but there seems to be a stance being taken in these earlier Disney films on who has access to magic, how have they gained access to magic, and what does that say about them as a person? What does that say about the morality of their actions? Villains take it for themselves. Good, innocent people have it gifted to them. And when
0: we looked through the films that did have a magical element in them through the uh, Walt Disney Animation Studios catalogue... There was like a big old gap. Post *Sword in the Stone* in 1963, we have this big gap until *The Black Cauldron* in 1985 of magic featuring these movies. I mean, the, the magic dies. Literally, Walt dies, and the magic goes away for but a while. The magic dies, and when it comes back, it is in that similar mold of characters like Ursula who have, you know, command of magic and use it to do terrible, terrible things. But that kind of changes with more recent Disney films. The idea of magic and who has it and who gets to use it and what they use it for becomes more complex, becomes less binary, and it manifests in some interesting ways. So, that is my way of teeing up another dress transformation clip. Who's up for seeing a little bit of Frozen? (laughs) Let it go, projector.
1: to see what I can do to test the limit.
0: Another clip. This is basically the whole second half of Let It Go, from the moment that Elsa starts making a big old castle of ice and then creates a lovely new dress for herself before slamming the doors on the world outside. You know the bit. It's one of the most famous Disney songs ever. That's the bit. Ooh. Ladies and gentlemen, Idina Menzel. The wickedly talented
1: Adele Dazune. Some people have forgotten, but I won't forget. (laughs) So I
0: think the thing that feels really significant here is that, yeah, it's another dress transformation, but this is Elsa creating a new look for herself. She is manifesting this for herself. She has the power. It's not bestowed on her. She's kind of taking... Control of her own power in this moment and yet in terms of that character specifically in this film She's also kind of the villain ish for a chunk of the movie. She's she's kind of moving in this nebulous space between kind of being an antagonist, but also being extremely sympathetic and then moving towards a more
1: heroic status towards the end Yeah, I mean, she is the Snow Queen, and the fairy tale that this is based on the Snow Queen is very much the villain. There had been, for a long time, versions of this story in development at Disney where this character was the villain, and it was a decision made during production that she should be this... eventually a straight-up heroine. But for that reason, she has a lot of the trappings, a lot of the conventions of these characters who have access to magic and use it for selfish ends. Although here when she's using it to empower herself, to make herself a nice, flashy new dress, it's shown as an, a moment of rebellion, a moment of empowerment. And it's rebellious and it's empowering, but at the same time, in
0: the narrative of the film, this is when she becomes most isolated. This is her shutting herself off, effectively, from the rest of society. And That's the kind of duality of this song, that it's this big, kind of outpouring this, this cathartic moment, and yet also where she is at the end of that clip is completely alone in a castle made of ice, uh, which if we're talking about, you know, Disney self-mythologizing and how it uses
1: magic, she literally makes a castle for herself. She literally makes a Disney castle. Yeah, I mean, that's interesting as well, isn't it? Just the way that the relationship between theme parks and magic kind of feels more like old Disney, where it's like, I'm Walt Disney, I have the magic power, and I'm gonna, if you're good, give me money, I'm gonna bestow that power unto you, and you can come and experience some of the magic for yourselves, it, it, Walt positions himself, and the Disney company since have positioned themselves as a, a fairy godmother in that way. So, we have another dress transformation
0: clip, which it might surprise you to know, is from Frozen 2. <laughs> We're going there, people. Can I do a shout out? Who else is on side with me and prefers Frozen 2 to Frozen 1? I'm going to say at least a third of the room, which is more than I expected. But once again, in that film, we see Elsa's identity shift again. We see her power change. We see her dress change. And this has like a different emphasis to it. It's also from the pretty much climactic song of the movie, of the trademarked Elsa banger, as we call them. (laughs) So let's roll the clip from Show Yourself. Final clip time, this is the second half of Show Yourself, the climactic number of Frozen 2. As Elsa enters Atta Hallen, the frozen glacier, the river of ice, sings a lovely song with the memory of her mother, and once again, makes a snazzy new dress for herself. If you haven't seen this one, go and look it up on YouTube, it's so good. Right, back to the show. Ooh. Once again, Idina Menzel, that person who applauded. You feel like applauding (laughs) at the end of that clip. Um, Yeah, I, I thought that was an important one to show because there's such a different emphasis to that scene. So in that moment, in a glacier, in a river of ice, Elsa is reconnecting with the memory of her mother. And it's in that kind of reconnection with family that she finds the truest version of herself, that she evolves once again, that comes with a physical transformation uh, and that she becomes the kind of most powerful and most connected version of herself instead of through isolation in the previous film by
1: connecting by connecting to her family and becoming this kind of purer version of Elsa it's also very handy that she constantly creates new costumes for herself so that they can sell outfits and dolls (laughs) you can't ignore that bit (laughs) yeah but Again, we kind of see Elsa and just the concept of magic in the movie Frozen 2 positioned in a way that is reflective of these earlier, mostly female villainesses who have this direct access to magic. And just after this, she sees, it's a weird movie, a vision of a grandfather made of ice who was the king before, but he's a baddie king, and he was doing baddie things to the magic people. If you want to hear us go deep on Frozen 2, we're going to get there in like a year and a half on the podcast. <laughs> And I, I will make discussion. myself understand the plot. There aren't enough PhDs in the world to help you understand the plot of Frozen 2, in my opinion. But the grandfather says, and I'm not going to do an impression of him because I can't remember what he sounds like, probably something like this, magic makes people feel too powerful, too entitled. It makes them think they can defy the will of a king. And this is shown to be his prejudice talking, but he could be describing Ursula. He could be describing Maleficent. And it just shows that what it means to take control of magic and empower yourself has evolved and changed over time. And that continues, really. This idea of magic being a virtuous thing for the characters to
0: possess and a way for them to connect to a family absolutely comes through also in Encanto. So this is, once again, a different interpretation of magic. This is uh, this is gifts and miracles, as I alluded to earlier on. And everybody in the uh, family Madrigal, there's a whole song that explains them all. Uh, I, I probably could do it now. Don't worry, I won't. Um, they all have these abilities, except for Mirabel, our hero, who is kind of trying to figure out what her power is supposed to be. It kind of turns out that her power is being the person who keeps the family together, who kind of unburdens all of the magic users around her of the problems that come with having magical powers.
1: Yeah, the family in this movie kind of play the fairy godmother role this time around, right? Like, they are the characters who are these benevolent good people who want to use their power to bestow boons on the people around them. But this time around, they're not just mysterious, benevolent, omnipotent forces of good. They are our protagonists. They are... I'm going to have to look at my list so I can remember... Each of their names. Welcome <laughs> to the family. Magical. Magical. Oh, let's go, dreams go dreams let's go. Dreams. Okay, yes. <laughs> so they have this power and they use it to grant boons to the people around them, but that's presented as an enormous weight to bear. So you've got like Bruno, whose power of prophecy hey, makes We don't him. talk about Bruno. Sorry. So. <laughs> you walked me into that one. Come on. Sorry. But you've got Louisa. Can we talk about Louisa? Louisa.
0: Luisa, super strong.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's the, bit, that's the bit in the song. It's, I, I can't believe he remembered that lyric. The beauty
0: and the brawn do no wrong Sam.
1: Okay, that's a bit more impressive. Um, so she also has a song where she sings about how there is too much pressure on her to perform, too much pressure to use her super what, strength. Like to... a drip, drip, drip that'll never stop. I'm just spitballing it. <laughs> um, yeah, so that's kind of her arc. Has learned to deal with that responsibility, and the responsibility that the abuela, the grandmother, the head of the family, feels to keep that family together to make sure that they can continue to use these powers is all actually what's breaking the family apart.
0: Yeah, and Mirabel's part in this story is the one who brings the family together. That is her gift. That is the function that she plays in that family because all of their powers kind of relate to the position that each family member holds in that unit. So, yeah, magic becomes a sort of more virtuous thing. It becomes connected to this idea of family, of connection with other people versus this horrible, horrible responsibility that will absolutely corrupt you into trying to murder children at every opportunity. Um, And for me, there's a a lyric at the end of Encanto, uh, when it's kind of revealed that that's what Mirabelle's gift is, that for me tied together a lot of the stuff that we've been talking about in terms of magic being sparkly and being stars, uh, that In the lyrics of all of you, the stars don't shine, they burn, the constellations glow, the seasons change in turn. Magic is this thing that over time in Disney has changed in turn. Those seasons have moved on. It's not just sort of twinkly magical powers. This is something alive and burning and connected with people. That felt like a neat summary for me. So to bring this to a head, if you want to sort the old slider rooney
1: Oh, if you scan that QR code with your phone, it will magically take you to a place you can subscribe to our podcast. So
0: when we look back at everything we've discussed, there's all kinds of reasons why magic is such a big deal for Disney. It's both a creative and, crucially, a financial driver for the company. It's linked to their financial fortunes over the years. It's an inherent part of animation. It's tied directly to you know the craft of animation and the audience experience of watching animation is directly related to walt's own fortunes and how he magicked up this incredible career for himself and for this company through the sheer power of making little funny drawings move Uh, and for me there's this element of manifestation of the characters with magic it represents themselves whether that's obviously the baby murdering of uh, Maleficent or whether that is you know the characters of Encanto Uh, Luisa is super strong she carries the burdens of the family so she's like got super strength Elsa's ice powers are a manifestation of what's happening with her and for me it mostly came down to magic kind of being an escape. This is the thing that allowed Walt Disney to escape his meager surroundings. It's Cinderella getting to leave the pain of her regular life behind to go to the ball. It's Geppetto getting to have a child, even if it's a freaky puppet boy. Uh, It's the magic carpet taking Aladdin and Jasmine to a whole new world. And it's even Elsa getting to build her own castle, even though it's made of solid ice.
1: Well, you know who would agree with you on that point, Ben? is the Soviet filmmaker and theorist, Sergei Eisenstein. Where are we going with this? (laughs) Because he was actually a big fan of Walt Disney's films, and he wrote that what really impressed him about those films was their ability to offer people an escape, specifically an escape from the crushing realities of the American capitalist system. (laughs) Which, if you know anything about Walt Disney, probably wasn't where he was going with that. (laughs) And, in fact, the escape that he offers us is one that we can continue to buy ourselves by subscribing to Disney Plus and by visiting Disneyland and spending a lot of money there, which isn't necessarily a dig because, like, we're going to Disneyland in, like, three weeks. (laughs) So what you're saying is capitalism was the real magic all along, despite what Eisenstein said. I don't know how we got here. (laughs) That's exactly what I'm saying. I can't think of a better... I genuinely can't think of a better way to wrap it up, so let's just... (laughs) Ask for questions. Yes, Time for if anybody questions. has
0: any questions, we have roving mics. Two questions. Uh, two, two questions.
1: This lady here with her hand up. Thank you for sharing the dress transformation scenes. I'd be really interested to know what your favorite moments of magic from Disney's animation history are. And if that's too hard to answer from the spot, your favorite magic users. I like it when the genie turns into Jack Nicholson. <laughs> Similarly,
0: I like it when uh, Merlin turns up at the end of Sword in the Stone and he's wearing just like a Bermuda outfit because he's, he's off on holiday. Uh, that's that's basically what I'm going to try and wear when
1: we go to Disneyland in
0: a couple of weeks.
1: Bermuda Merlin cosplayer. Um, we, we kind of glossed
0: over Sword in the Stone a little bit, which if you've listened to our podcast, you'll know, sadly, we weren't huge fans of that film. Apologies to any Stoneheads in the audience. Um, but Merlin is great in that and the magical transformation battle between uh, Merlin and Madame Mim is excellent and that is like the absolute definition of magical transformations being a spectacle, you go and see that film because you're going to see uh, a couple of weirdos transform into all kinds of different animals and have a magical battle over the course of five or ten
1: minutes. I mean, that's kind of why I like it when the genie turns into Jack Nicholson as well, because it's, it's like the, spectac- <laughs> the spectacle of, of Eric Goldberg, the animator who, who was the lead on that character. It, his animation, his like knack for caricature and the, the plasmaticness, another term coined by Sergei Eisenstein in relation to animation, of... His body, like the fluidity with which he metamorphosizes into these different characters, and you know, one of the most overt ways in which magic manifests itself in all kinds of animation is through transformation. And it's often the characters like the genie, like Merlin, who have access to the power of transformation, who are the most powerful characters in a given film. We've got time for one more question. Who's going to be the magic?
0: Hey, this guy. Oh, you've got an enchanted tiki room jersey on. I also own that jersey. It's really (laughs) nice, isn't
1: it? Hi, yeah. Firstly, um, nice talk. I've not heard the podcast before. I'm probably going to subscribe to it. So very amazing. Good. Thank you, man. Um, yeah, probably like an open-ended question. Really, thinking over like into like the next twenty years. I know we've talked about like the past of Disney and how magic has kind of like changed throughout. And you showed some pictures from uh, from Wish as well. What's like the next level of magic for Disney? Like in their films, do we think it's probably like a guess? But like, where is magic going? In Disney, NFTs probably. <laughs> <laughs> that seems to be where it's going. The magic of uh, scanning actors so that they can use them in AI-generated simulations forever.
0: Yeah, I mean it's a tricky one because it feels like whenever Disney goes through a bit of a downturn, they either stumble upon whatever the next thing is kind of by accident, or they really put their heads together and go, "How do we? How do we get the magic back? Help!" Um, So it's kind of intriguing to see what happens. It feels like, to me, they're still kind of in a pretty good period. Uh, Obviously, Strange World didn't do huge business, but I thought that was a pretty great film. I really enjoyed that film. Uh, You go before that, and you've got, obviously, the the Frozen movies and Encanto. feels like they're still in a, a kind of decent place at the moment. In terms of where the magic goes, I'm fascinated to see how Disney responds to for lack of a better term, the spider-versification of animation, because the first Spider-Verse especially feels like a real insane leap forward. But I don't know whether Disney responds to that by going ultra-traditional and holding ground of, like, this is what Disney is in the face of this just, you know, seismic leap, or whether Disney follows suit to an extent and hopefully maybe experiments a bit with visual styles and how visual styles can kind of uh, dovetail with the stories they're telling, which is also why I'm intrigued about Wish because Wish seems like it's kind of trying to do all of those things. It's reaching back into the Disney of the past to tell a new story that only they could tell, but that has like a different visual sensibility that I, it feels kind of has to be at least partially uh, you know, influenced by the fact that the rest of the industry is going through this incredible leap.
1: You know, in The Black Cauldron, right. the, the scene at the end of The Black Cauldron, which you'll remember if you've seen The Black Cauldron, when all the skellies come out of the cauldron, all the skeleton boys come out and scare everybody and they're all green and stuff, that was originally, there was an idea for that to be a hologram. There was an idea for that to be projected into the cinema so that you could, see, not like 3D, like a hologram, Right? Like Tupac. That's a, wow, that's such an old reference. Like Tupac or Coachella. Who's a more famous hologram of late?
0: I think he's still the one.
1: Right. So like Tupac, the, the, the rotten corpses of these skeletons were going to come out of the cauldron into the room. Maybe they could give that another crack. Disney, if you're listening, we have ideas.
0: Uh, well, that wraps us up. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you guys. There we have it. We hope you enjoyed our BFI talk. We had an absolute blast. Another huge thank you to everybody at the BFI. And if you want more of that, well, this coming Saturday, the 12th of August, Sam and I will be back at the BFI. But there's a catch. You have to be a youngster. We will be back for a Disney day for young audiences on Saturday, the 12th, august at the bfi giving another different talk this time but once again doing our thing Uh, so if you are a young listener of this show how the hell did you find us no uh, we hope you (laughs) enjoy the show and uh yeah come down and see us at the bfi we'll be giving another talk what we also will be doing which is not dependent on you being 12 to 16 years old is introducing on that day the screening of pinocchio at the bfi yes I'm going to have to reconfront the trauma of Pinocchio once more as Sam and I take to the stage to introduce the film at the BFI. So if you're coming down to that, we will see you there, you will see us there, it'll be great. Come and wave at us, we'll wave right back because we are real boys. And just to add, the BFI's Making Magic 100 Years of Disney season is continuing through August. Have a look at their schedule, see what films they have coming up, they are showing all kinds of classics in their lovely cinema on the South Bank, and even bits at the IMAX, I believe. So do go and check out what is coming up through the rest of the month at the BFI's website. And once again, just before we wrap up, another little plug for our London Podcast Festival show. We're talking Shrek. We're finally (laughs) talking about the big green boy in the room, Sam's unofficial boss. (laughs) And we'll be doing that on Saturday, the 9th of September at King's Place in London. Tickets are on sale right now, kingsplace.co.uk. We would absolutely love to see you there. It's going to be a total blast. But for now, it's goodbye from Sam.
1: <laughs> goodbye. See you later.
0: Sam, what's your swamp chic outfit going to be?
1: I know exactly what it's going to be. I've got a, I've got a perfect outfit picked out, but I'm going to... Uh, I'm going Do you to actually? You Do you have yeah, 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 already? yeah. Yeah, I have a... I have a... <laughs> I have an excellent uh, Shrek t-shirt that I made myself that I only wear on Shreksual occasions, which is very rare. So when I give talks about Shrek, I I often wear this shirt, and you'll see me wearing this shirt. I don't think you've ever seen it.
0: (laughs) Ooh, okay. Well, it's going to be a mystery from you guys, maybe even a mystery from me, until Saturday the 9th of September. Uh, Anyway, it's goodbye from Sam, and it's goodbye from me. Thank you so much to everybody at the BFI, everybody who came to the talk and we will be back with a regularly scheduled podcast before too long see you soon bye Disneyversity is brought to you by Ben Travis and Sam Summers our artwork is by Ollie Gibbs and our music is by Nefetz follow us at Disneyversity on Twitter and Instagram and catch you for next week's class